German Word of the Day, verschlimmbessern. 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 Schlimm means make it worse mm -hmm. or it's bad. And verbessern means to make it better. So in the attempt to make it better, you actually make it worse. <laughs> Wow, so this is a... Verschlimmbessern. So we're talking about org change management and in the attempt to make the organization better, you've actually made it worse. Oh, well, well. <laughs> Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wolt, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? Not too bad, Roland. It's been a crazy month. And it's only February 15th, so, oh boy, we're halfway through and it's crazy already, but I couldn't be happier to be here with you today to record our podcast. You, you mean halfway through the winter or halfway through this episode or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, it's it, it's been crazy, but, you know, I, I just did a webinar this morning. It was such a fantastic experience. We had lots of great folks on it, but it was all about the theme of love. And uh, <laughs> I got to say, there's only so many ways that I can pack the idea of romance into dashboarding and visualizations. <laughs> well, th then I have then I have some uh, heartwarming content for you, which is actually very close to my heart, because today we're going to talk about organizational change management. Yes, but in the, specifically in the context of architecture projects and implementations. That is true. And I don't know if you knew that, but I started my professional career in change management services. Really? Yeah. So that's that's something that's very close to my heart, as I said before. I, I thought you started your professional career in the change management of which shell went into the main cannon in the battle tank. Is that is that not the change oh. management you were managing? <laughs> after my toy phase. Oh, okay, know? after your toy phase, after your phase. Well, so obviously it's very close to your heart and, you know, Often on the show, you'll hear me talk about the people. I care a lot about the people. And I feel like in particularly in architecture implementations and in, in large scale change in the way in which organizations operate, the people are often, they struggle to adapt. They struggle to get the resources they need. They're not really brought along with the technology. And when I, I say this in, in podcasts, I say this in meetings all the time, you know, real change is the change in people, process and technology in that order. And I feel like oftentimes those people get left at the at the back. They're not at the front of the line. They're at the back of the line. So tell me a little bit more about where you started this your career and why you thought change management was such a passionate place to go from a professional start. Well, that's a very good question. Um, and maybe I'm a little bit special here, you know, like all of our mothers say that we're all special. Um, but as you know, I do have a master's degree in education. So that's obviously something that's relatively close. You deal with people. Uh, I always made fun 
uh, that this is just because the German armed forces are the country's largest kindergarten and they need some adult supervision. <laughs> but uh, in some cases, oh boy. obviously, you learn something. And yeah. I started way back when in that topic because I found it just like you interesting to see how people are affected by systems implementations and by uh, changes overall, you know, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, um, I think you can put as many wallpapers, processes, for example, on the wall as you want, and you can put as many black boxes in your basement, your servers, if you want. If the person in front of the screen doesn't want to do it, they won't. Yeah. And that is how large implementations fail, because people just refuse to contribute. Yeah, I read a really good quote from uh, a book that I love. I, I've been reading called Our Iceberg is Melting uh, by John Cotter. Um, and it, it was he was talking about that the change needs to be self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. And what does self-sustainment mean? Well, first and foremost, you need to get the first class of change agents bought into the change. You need to build an engine, right, that, that gets going. And that first part is really hard. The starting inertia of change is incredibly high. But once you have a, a critical mass of people who believe and understand and are equipped, then they become your biggest advocates. They are truly the heroes. Yeah, and I think it's a misconception that people think when they talk about organizational change management versus the management of change that we discussed with Casper in the last episode, mm -hmm. um, that this is just a feel-good, touchy-touchy, we're all happy people and get a participation trophy exercise. It's not. The focus is on management. And, and you allude to this. It is something that needs to be managed and needs to be set up and needs to be sustained to be successful. Exactly. And I want to jump straight into this. We have we have sort of the three sections we go through in every episode. Um, but at the beginning, we're talking a lot about the why. And, and Roland, from your experience, what you've seen, you know, let's talk about why we're doing this. And let's first start with the negative. So talking about risks, you know, when you're looking at implementations and, and change and, and transformation, what are the risks that are posed when you neglect the approach of a change management discipline or a, a structured way of doing things uh, to, to build that consensus, to build that acceptance. And I mean, I think you mentioned it right at the beginning, but those projects simply, they fail. Um, tell, but tell me why, what, what, what are the risks? How are they realized when you don't put change management at the forefront of your, of your strategic vision? The risks that might occur when you don't do change management is that your system implementation or your restructuring might fail because at the end of the day it doesn't matter how many wallpapers you put on the wall you know your new processes or how many black boxes you put in the basement your new servers and all that stuff if the person who sits in front of the screen doesn't want to do it they won't and the reasons for that i think is as, as you said in our pre-recording uh, very eloquently is basically three reasons uh, it's authority it's security and it's um, competency, really. Yeah, or capability, if yeah. you will. Yeah. So let's dissect those three things. You know, what's the authority? So a typical scenario that you see is in system implementation is that you have changes, changes in the role, changes in the org structure. You know, you might not be the head honcho anymore and have so and so many people reporting into you. Right? You have a lesser degree of um, organizational cloud, if you will, 
right? That might bring you to a point where you don't want to have that new role and you resist this. Mm -hmm. The second point uh, that I see might be pure security. When you think about the Maslow pyramid, you know, maybe you're afraid you lose your job. Yeah. Right. Because it's a rationalization. And, and we discussed this in the task mining episode as well. You know, Big Brother is watching you. And, and what does that mean for my job? And then the third one might be a complete personal activity. You know, the internal capability uh, that you have, the, the competencies that you have. Maybe you're just afraid that you're not able to do the new stuff in a new system, in a new org structure, following new processes. And that psychology tells you will create stress and then it might kick in you have your fight or flight reaction in both cases both is not good because you check out <laughs> yeah I, I we were talking before about um this idea of of expertise and the idea of becoming sort of disconnected and complacent mm -hmm. it was in a different context but i think that organization change management around transformation is a big part of that because people come to expect that their expertise is valuable mm -hmm. and their expertise can get rooted in sort of the way that things are being done, the systems that are being used. And so the technical clicks that are required or just even how those systems interact, interact with each other, both integrations and from like a business value and meaning perspective. And a threat to that is an existential threat to our knowledge experts. We talked, we talked about this um, in other podcasts with this idea of the replacement of the knowledge worker. There is a lot of people who are worried that their competency is going to be worth less mm -hmm. because organizations are going to change around them to make that competency less valuable. And I think the biggest part that, you know, that we're looking at in this episode is talking about strategies to make people feel valued nonetheless, to get that complacency gone that's driven by routine and to showcase the value that they bring to the organization, regardless of whether or not they're using the same tool with the same clicks. Yeah, there is a concept in change in org change management to be very specific, uh, which is called the Valley of the Tears. Have you heard about that? No, no. Tell me about the Valley of Tears. So, so when you think about a uh, line chart um, where you have the time on the x-axis, you know, and you have a stable um, level of competence, right? A stable level of output that you produce. So, when change is introduced, you might go in the beginning a little bit up and you say, You're all excited. Hey, we're doing this, this new thing, you know. And at some point in time, you realize this is harder than you thought, right? So, your mind changes in general and it goes down. And actually, productivity sinks below the uh, original level. Oh, interesting. Right? And then on that lowest level, at some point in time, people might check out, people might say, hey, I picked this up as a personal challenge and whatnot. And then people start adapting to the new system with the idea. And then you see the curve climbing up uh, to a level that's higher uh, productivity or competency wise than it has been before. Mm -hmm. And the idea is obviously that once that is out, you have a new stable uh, horizontal line in your competency. Right. So, so now we, we're talking a little bit about the why, and I think that's really good. And we'll talk about some other, you know, sort of impacts as we go through this. But I, I wanted to to center this in the areas uh, of implementations and how they are affected by 
change and change management in implementation and in transformation. Mm-hmm. And Roland, I know you know pitch for the website is always what's your baseline.com. You're going to have a really great graphic for this, but uh, we have those the three areas we wanted to focus on today in this in this for our first why section. Um, which is all about content adoption and governance. Now, let's go through each one at a time. And, and you know, Roland, this is this is something that I know you've got lots of experience in. Tell me more about the first of these three. Let's talk about the content. Um, wh- wh- what are we doing with that? Yeah. So, the, so the slide, the graphic that I'm going to put up on the show notes, as you said. Yeah. Um, think about a Venn diagram, and all those three circles are somehow connected to certain degrees. What I've seen when we came to architecture implementations is you need to balance all three of them. Mm -hmm. And depends on who you asked, uh, they might, the clients might have different ideas where they should start. Some of them say, hey, I just want to create content. You know, I need to create um, architecture models. I need to be able to analyze it. I need to be able to create solution designs or, or whatever, right? So they just want to have a tool that helps them do the work, right? Another group might come, and that might be the traditional view of EAs, which hopefully is is almost gone. Those are the guys, the committee of no, NO, you know, the ARB, yeah. who say, no, we need to put up standards. Uh, we need to define the services that we provide to our users. We need to build a center of excellence. Yeah. You know, so those are the two areas that I typically see when clients approach us with the idea, hey, I, I think that architecture thing or that process management thing is a good thing. I want to have this. So wait, their whole idea is just make stuff and force people to use the stuff they made. Yeah. That seems like it's missing that third piece, that interlock we talk about, or you're going to say a little bit right now, which is the adoption side. Yeah, it's it's that is the interesting thing. I have not in my 25 years that I'm doing this, somebody approach me and say, hey, I need help with that adoption, right? And uh, when we pitch it, and I typically draw a diagonal line through those uh, through that Venn diagram and say, yeah, that's what clients are willing to pay for, but what's on the adoption side is actually what makes it sing. Yeah. Right? And this includes things like communication that we're going to talk about in a later segment in this show here. Mm-hmm. It includes things like publishing your results and make that as easy as possible or dashboards or have your enablement aligned to roles, which we're going to talk about in a later segment as well. Yeah, and I feel like there's there are lots of interlocks in between these three pieces. I mean, the Venn diagram does have a nice overlap, things like between content and adoption, right? How are you going to make content accessible mm-hmm. um, for your users? And we've talked about in a previous episode the idea of a st- standardized languages and easy to understand, good user interfaces, you know, give, give, serving it up on a platter. Um, we've also talked about content and governance. Um, because you know, if you follow out previous episodes, you'll already be familiar with the idea of process governance and being able to do automation and low touch and and low hassle, mm-hmm. but high compliance, uh, mo- monitoring and management of documentation and standards uh, application. The thing that really fascinates me is this interlock between adoption and governance, because that's going to be the soft touch, hard touch approach. Like, how much are you using the mandate of governance to drive a forced adoption? So that's the sort of high-level thing. Versus are you talking about the grassroots 
acceptance and collective community support of an idea, which is sort of the opposite. Like the community governs itself almost, like the, like I talked about before, this self-perpetuating machine. Yeah, I think the key here is communication. Yeah. Right, if you just put up a, a set of rules and you say, hey, you all must abide by those rules, and if not, I pull out the big hammer and you're in big trouble, that won't work, right? That creates resistance. And I think um, communication and also um, enable your users. So train them that they, are, that they are capable of doing what you have defined in your governance is super crucial. One of the things that I, I feel very strongly about is explaining why. Mm -hmm. If people don't hear why we're doing something, why this transformation matters, why them changing their processes is better, if they don't feel a personal connection to the mission and the purpose of a change, then a change might as well have been random. And it's much easier to fight back against something that's random because you can say, well, wait a second, uh, this doesn't feel like it's purposeful. This just feels random. It, it, I, I don't feel connected with it. I'm not going to do it because what I do doesn't really make a difference. And you mentioned it in a half sentence. Right. It's not only explaining why it's important. Oh, the company can make more money or we're going to be more efficient or we're going to gain market share compared to our competition. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter for the individual. They could care less. Yeah. Right. Except, of course, you're the CEO and your compensation is dependent on your market <laughs> performance. So there are some outliers here. But for the, for the regular person working in an organization, it really doesn't matter. What matters is more like, how does that change affect me? How am I affected by this? Do I need, like I said before, do I need to change in a way that I might not be able to succeed? But when I think about, and let's move on a little bit on this, when I think about org change management, I typically see in the context of architecture and process implementations, I see three big areas that I'd like to talk with you over the rest of this, this show. The first one is uh, org design. Yeah. That's something that people might forget, you know, uh, as a part of change management or org change management. The second one is communication. And the third topic I'd like to talk with you about is uh, enablement. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the org design. JM, what have you seen on your projects, how org design was done or was not done uh, <laughs> on your projects? Well, I, I feel like one of the things that is a hallmark of organizational design from a lot of the projects I've worked on in companies that have experienced, I'm going to say, a medium amount of success is that it's kind of done separately. Mm -hmm. The conversation around architecture is is the technical side of the work and there is someone else thinking about this and the transformation even if even if it's in the same program it's a different definitely a different silo it's reorienting how the roles work reorienting how management is done and it's it's not connected into the or the actual architecture and in the structures that you're building underneath it i mean it's it's driven by ownership but ownership is also a very sensitive conversation. I always say this in meetings to people, you know, I know that process ownership is a hot button topic because there's been a lot of people who's, who've gotten their hands bit by having that conversation. And sometimes it's just other people dictating ownership or dictating spans of control and things like that. Um, oftentimes outside of that context of the people who are actually doing the work to change the architecture, to do the transformation itself. Um, and that, that disconnection means that by your very design, 
you're you're it's only a, a factor of luck if the alignment is very tight does that make sense oh it does for sure um what i've seen is also same observation separate group of people right doing some magic things yeah. that has nothing to do with the architecture work but one thing you should not forget about this you also need to talk to all those quote-unquote nasty activities like talk with unions you know and negotiate with them yeah. so there might not be the silver bullet solution you know we want the process to run xyz and therefore we need to do these and those changes so you need to keep that in mind as well that you have what we like to say in in germany uh realpolitik <laughs> you know so yeah. that's not just the ideal thing but you need to take uh, reality into consideration I've also seen uh, some interesting factors when it comes to people protecting themselves and their community. Now, I understand that everyone wants to be you know, loyal to those who are giving their trust in them and represent for their teams and things like that. But when you, when you come to the table and you're given the privilege of being part of the conversation around org transformation as part of the transformation program, I found a lot of people advocating um, for what their group needs mm -hmm. and because they feel like they have to without seeing the larger picture of what the organization needs because really what the organization needs is for you to become part of the new puzzle rather than for your little wedge to stick itself somewhere in this new puzzle and it doesn't look like any of the other pieces. Mm -hmm. So everyone needs to transform together and the stronger you advocate for your own way of doing things, the, there's two real options. Either it becomes the standard and everyone does it the way you do it, which is very unlikely. Or you've just wrecked somebody else's puzzle by shoving something in there they're going to have to carve around. Yeah, and I think this brings us to the, what is the better way of doing it? Yeah, let's well, do it better. And I think when we start with that, um, the first disconnect, and we already spoke about that, is you typically see people doing org design that are not part of the architecture group or who are not connected to the architecture group. So in this case, it basically means that they do their org design decisions on a complete different foundation, you know? And my recommendation would be, well, talk to your business architects because those are the guys who define the future state. And obviously when you then see the roles and what those roles are supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it, well, then start thinking about what is the most optimal way of organizing those roles into org units that then would take into consideration those things like span of control and all those other things. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that, remember, you have this in documentation, right? Solution designs, part of your solution lifecycle, um, should help inform those changes in roles and org structures. I mean, you're already doing this. You're having this conversation. Why not use the, you've, you've spent money, time, and expertise building to inform one of the most crucial parts of this transformation, mm -hmm. how it's going to be run. But that also means that your org change management people need to pick up a new skill. Yes. Right. They need to, at least on a very rudimentary level, understand basic business architecture development, <laughs> you know, which might be complete uh, alien to them, right? They also need to learn and understand foundational concepts of EA, you know, how are things wired up? How do you connect the dots? So that they then can take the outcomes of the designs as an input for their work and then create ideally the org view of the architecture. Yeah. So your org change management people actually become something like business architects. 
I know. And and being business architects, geez, maybe you could even teach them the, the platform that you're using to document. Oh, that's <laughs> because, scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if they can see all the relationships in that tool set, they can now leverage the work you're doing. And so now, once again, you're bringing them in. You're making them stakeholders in your reusable collateral. And when you have that business architecture tool that allows for it, now you've made a friend, you've made an ally, and most importantly, you've enabled someone to be excellent. And you make their life easier. Exactly. Right? If you can run a report in your uh, process tool that gives you a list of, oh, these are all the activities that a role does, and they're using this system for it, and those transactions, guess what? Creating curriculum, for example, becomes super simple. So there's additional benefits in there. Um, one thing, though, that I would like to stress out again is uh, when we take a step back on organizational change management, I think I said it before, it's a management activity. So what yeah. you want is you want to see not only the feel-good stuff and everybody's happy, but you want to see changed, observable behavior in people. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing. You need to come up with not only what do I ask people to do, and how do I organize them? But you also need to define, how do I measure that? How do I know that people actually have changed? Not by just them telling me so, but by actually literally looking at it and see that they do something differently. And that's how you know you've gotten there. And that's going to lead us to our first question for this afternoon's podcast. Uh, number one is, what, what changes have you seen in your organization through implementation and transformation. Um, and talk to talk to yourself, maybe talk to us, your anchor, um, about where those changes were centered. Are they process technologies? Are, are, are they technology changes? Are they structure changes? Um, how were they built and how did those parts interact with each other? And most importantly, how did this change personally affect you, the good and the bad, and what would have made that easier? We'll give you a couple of seconds to think about it. We'll come back with our second section, the how. Welcome back, and I hope you had some time to think about that single question that JM asked you, <laughs> um, even though I had like 35 in my mind, if I'm not mistaken. But anyways, let's go to the how section of this episode. Um, and I like to talk uh, with you, JM, about stakeholders and communications Yeah. Uh, and how that fits into the bigger picture of org change management. So maybe let's get started, JM, out of your experience, what is a typical starting point for org change management? Well, the first piece of the org change management is we need to figure out who we are impacting, right? So that's going to involve stakeholder identification and then building a plan to reach those people. Mm -hmm. And never forget that sometimes those people, they might be one desk over, but they're very far away. And that, that far away mentality, that far away need set, 
we need to bring that into the, the analysis. And so the first piece of the puzzle is we're going to take a look at who we have and plan to get in touch with them. And the next thing we want to do is we want to figure out each of those stakeholder groups, like you would a persona for a customer journey. First and foremost, what are they looking for? What's going to move the needle for them? And what are their goals as part of their role, as part of their organization? And how do their organizations relate to each other? How do their roles relate to each other? Do they have things like handoffs at mid-process? So you have end-to-ends where they have to interact with each other. Are they consumers or producers of information for each other? Do they compete with each other for resources in some cases? Like there's also organizational politics we tend to consider in these cases. So we can do, we can end up drawing a, a big relationship map, um, kind of like a net map. And I know, Roland, you're going to put that a, a link to the net map in the show notes so people can see what that kind of a concept entails. The net map concept, and like I said, I will put a link below is actually looking at the individuals oh this is john smith and john smith is that guy that always throws a bump into every meeting right and and blocks everything oh there's jane doe and she's good from the bottom of her heart and she enables all those guys unfortunately uh the first one is the boss and has more organizational power than jane doe so what that met, net map concept means is it shows not only those hierarchical structures that you definitely will need, right, as part of your org design, but it also maps out the influence of stakeholders to each other. Because maybe the bad guy, he has a buddy in another org unit who he get along with, the only guy in the organization he gets along with. So maybe you could recruit him. Absolutely. That second guy to change the behavior, right? And that NetMap concept allows you to map this out. Obviously, you shouldn't leave that on your table when you talk to your stakeholders, <laughs> but it gives you clarity about how you go around personal roadblocks if you run into that situation that you have a stakeholder who doesn't want to play ball. The NetMap would be kind of the abstraction level, almost like a like the the analogy would be process mining to task mining getting down to the individual actors whereas a uh, sort of the, the mapping of stakeholders and, and organizational structures is more at the higher level of how do the organization operate and I, i've also seen you know as much as individuals have influences we also understand the impact of organization structures on each other mm-hmm. and what and who's you know, who's beholden to other organizations, what, what are the power dynamics not just in individuals but also at an organization level so i think that those 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 like work nicely together, and I'm 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 excited to see how that you put this into uh, strategy because particularly when you take all this information, now we've got it. What what do you take it from there and do with it, Roland? Right. So what we've done by now is we've defined our personas or our stakeholders. Yeah. Right. We've captured their objectives. Where do they want to see the ship go, and their needs that they have. Right. And then you've defined uh, the activities that might help with those needs and objectives. And on top of it, you should think about the measurement of those activities so that you know that you've made it, yeah. right? And you came to that point. So like I said a couple of times before, it's management after all. So what I've typically seen in the projects was creating a two-phased approach. And the first approach or the first half of it was creating a strategy, right? Where you put all those things in writing and you put all those things on a piece of paper and say, okay, this is how we're going to hold ourselves accountable for. And then the second half of that uh, sprint was actually implementing all those 
things that you've put into your strategy, you know, all the measures, and see if the organization really changes. And that is, like I said before the break, that is where the uh, observable behavior change comes into place. Yeah. So having said that, um, first thing deliverable that I would create is an org change management strategy document, right? Yes. That includes your stakeholders, the objectives, the needs, the measures, uh, the activities that you do, and so on and so forth. And don't forget that you want to socialize it, right? You want to have the buy-in of the stakeholders. Everybody should give them the nod there. So one thing that I would do is I would put the collection of those objectives, needs, activities, and so on and so forth as an appendix uh, to the strategy document mm -hmm. so that people see, oh, wait, I think we should do this. And now I see that JM guy and, and he has complete different needs. Well, I actually have the same needs, but I didn't think about this, mm -hmm. right? So that it goes into iterations, but at some point in time, you have a consensus um, of every involved stakeholder that this is the thing that we should go forward with. Or in the worst case, you've identified a stakeholder who doesn't want to play ball, right? And then you need to see how you deal with that situation. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about sort of the buy-in and approval side of things because I've seen a lot of people struggle in this in this case. Remember when you're collecting information, ver validating the veracity of that information, that is at the point in time where your stakeholders have the ultimate power to say yes and no. Mm -hmm. That's when they're actually doing approvals is validating the veracity of the information you've collected from them. When you go back to them with a strategy document, the time for them to uh, have objections to your assessments of their needs has passed. Mm -hmm. Now it's time to socialize and gain consensus. And I feel like the, the, the approval is, if, it's, if you've done the first part right, the approval is a rubber stamp. I hope so. I hope so. I certainly hope so, because because at that point in time, you've already done a lot of work. Now, you, we, this idea of sort of failing earlier is cheaper sort of thing does come into play here as well, because once again, we're doing the strategy document. But the idea, hopefully, is that all the changes and updates that need to have been done were done prior to this. And so then from there, you can take that strategy and develop an action plan that has their inputs and their consensus to move forward with, but didn't require like that, you know, the, the, the big conversation on approval at that end time. And so talk to me a little bit about, because, you know, you love Notion. I know we, we love the, the platform <laughs> Notion, but if you're looking to make a, a giant Excel file or Notion, what does an action plan look like that comes straight out of your strategy document? Yeah. So, so first of all, it's a second deliverable, right? I would not put an, an actionable plan into a strategy document. Oh no. I might put in some high level things, think about communication. Oh, we're gonna have a newsletter that comes out at this time and another generic newsletter that comes out at that time and whatnot. But it doesn't say, oh, it goes to org unit A on this date in that medium with that reaction. Right? So first document, strategy document, high level, socialized, everybody buys in. Based on that you create your org change management plan. And that org change management plan typically has uh, different aspects. And things that come into mind are four in this case. The first one is, what's your communication content? When you think about a systems implementation, you typically nowadays don't have the big rollout where everybody gets the same information at the same time. You typically have more like a staggered rollout. And now in your plan, 
you might think about, okay, what's the first type of communication that I have to send to those groups? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a welcome message. Hey, congratulations, JM. You're affected by our change. How do you feel about this? Hey. And then you might have a second content communication where then say, oh, by the way, this is what we're going to do. You know, step one, step two, step three, and this is how you're involved. And then according to that, you might have a third, fourth, fifth um, content communication to your end users up to a point where you're done. You know, you've rolled it out. People are trained. Everybody's happy. So that's the first one, communication content in the plan. The second one is, as I alluded to it, is the frequency, right? Is there a pattern of communication for a specific stakeholder group, right? So think about the end users that I spoke about. I think about some high-level stakeholders where you would do fireside chats or whatever with it. Think about a big organization-wide communication in the past, before the pandemic, you would have collected everybody in the auditorium and people would have given uh, yep. big speeches, right? So you need to define, you have your content, you need to define when to communicate what, what's the frequency and how you get to this. And also some stakeholder groups will need certain types of frequencies based on their own existing communication strategies. So the more you can integrate into their expe expectations um, and their expected, even the thing you're going to talk about next is channels and mediums. If you can integrate what you're doing into what the expected conversation is that's happening between the organization and their people, then you're a winner because it feels like it's their own. It feels it's got the right smell. Uh, the, the, it's what you call the stable smell. Mm -hmm. And that's it's perfect. Now they're going to be much better accept it and open and read and do what you're asking. Yeah. And then the third thing that you want to look at, and, and I totally agree with you, JM, is actually have a look at your communication mediums. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we see nowadays, and that's unfortunate, I think, in our digital times is we have things like emails that nobody reads, mm -hmm. you know, newsletters that nobody signs up for. Mm -hmm. um, you might have forums. If you're old enough, you remember those days where people <laughs> went there and, and did this. Or yeah. you might have your intranet and, uh, or wiki or whatever, right? People try to communicate uh, digitally. <clears throat> and that is, in my experience, a lot of out of touch. Yeah. Right? People don't feel valued or whatever, individually addressed. Think about also if you want to do some physical things, right? And I'm not only talking about, hey, send a t-shirt with a project logo to everybody. That's lame. <laughs> I mean, you know? that's, I mean, I like free t-shirts though, Roland. I don't know. Don't take away free t-shirts. <laughs> In the late 90s, I worked on a project with an internet uh, company, you know, big telco and the internet branch. And we did a uh, implementation of a billing system, completely new, uh, high tech, the latest and greatest at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And what we did is because uh, we needed to migrate about 40 million customers on the fly mm -hmm. to that new billing system. So the telco sent out physical invoices every 20 days, mm -hmm. right? So you couldn't do the migration, but you could just do it when that day was do for them. So what we did is we had a big plexiglass tube, like eight feet tall, and we filled it with little pebbles. Okay. Right. And then showing what's the progress of our migration. Oh. Right. To when you went into the building, you walked past that big tube and you literally could see how the pebbles filled up that tube and you could say, oh, gee, we have 10 million migrated, 15 million, 20 million. 
And, and at some point in time, obviously, the tube was full. We were done. We all went home. That's nice, though. Right. Or, or think about, that's also what we did. We created a little book. Yeah. A physical book, you know, Dead Trees, mm -hmm. uh, that then had uh, photos of all... Uh, members of the teams there oh, wow. right in there and it had whatever the system modification requests and all that stuff that we did there and that was basically the the leave behind um and it was a nice way of documenting what we did mm -hmm. right and i i think what you think about is when you think about the medium for your communications don't just think about electronic mediums yeah people are analog individuals Right. Think about if you can have something that is tangible for them. And also think about what it's going to do for them, right? Mm -hmm. and the, the pebbles you mentioned, that's inspirational. That's telling you everyone's doing their little bit and together we're making something bigger. We're filling, uh, filling up our cup. Um, but th you think about like asynchronous versus, um, versus sort of always available versus notification. Like I sent an email. Mm -hmm. You get maybe a notification, but it's also asynchronously available to you whether or not you open it versus cre creating a wiki or creating a, a you know poster board or something that that's, you can just access it whenever you want. So you can walk to that physical location or you can go to that, that website. Um, so it's on demand. So you're never left wanting for information because it's, it's at your fingertips, um, but you may not see it because there's no notification. So remember, think about, think about what each medium is going to do for you and how it affects the people who are involved, because that's half the story. Yeah. And pro tip, if you think about something like filling a plastic tube or, or uh, a tube with pebbles, have a chat with the architect of the building first. Those things are really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, then here's a question for you. Then how are we going to figure out whether or not what we're doing is effective, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the last piece of the puzzle here is we're going to track the effectiveness of our communications and ultimately of our change. Yeah, I think it's two aspects here that you should think about. Is the first one as in every good communication you should establish a feedback channel, yeah. one or more, right? So it should not make your life easier as the communications person. It should make the stakeholders' life easier to get in contact with you. Mm -hmm. That could be an email address. That could be uh, forums that you set up. That could be open office hours that you set up in uh, your building. Because we're not looking to make the transformation easier we're looking to make it easier for people to transform. Yes, yes. And if they build up enough trust with you, they will tell you the truth. Yeah. Which might be uncomfortable for you, you know, if somebody's yelling at you. <laughs> but at least you got the feedback that you wanted. And then the second thing you want to have a look at is, obviously, how do you measure the behavior? Yeah. So do the people do how things were planned? Mm -hmm. Do they find shortcuts uh, in the execution of your new processes or do they avoid things, right? So that is something you might want to have a look at. You obviously could use technologies like process mining for this, but it also might be the occasional chat in the coffee kitchen and just ask them how they're doing. Yeah, as a question for you, how often do you come down on people? How soon upon the transformation? What, what's the sort of rule of thumb for you? Because obviously... As people change, I know they're going to slip up and make mistakes. Compliance might start out pretty low. Um, how do you guide with a gentle hand, but also a firm hand? Well, 
One thing that we haven't spoken about is how do I set my org change management organization? And you alluded to it. You obviously have the people who do the org design and the people who do the planning that we just spoke about and whatnot. But then you have obviously the people who execute. That might be your trainers. Mm -hmm. That might be your change agents, right? Which could be something like super users in your new tools. So they get an earlier training, they're involved in the development of it, and they just know more by definition. And uh, a good thing that you would think about is if you make those change agents, those super users, also be your first line of uh, support. Oh. And then they will get all that feedback, you know, why does that thing doesn't work? Why is it so hard to do X, Y, and Z, you know? And maybe they can uh, A, ease out those troubles that people might have in the beginning, but definitely they will capture the feedback that they get, you know, because they have the angry support calls in the worst case. So I'm hearing like a peer-led compliance strategy. I wouldn't say compliance, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's that way you look at, you know, you want to have support. <laughs> she wouldn't say compliance, but you do mean compliance. <clears throat> you, you, what you want is you want to have your users obviously follow your new processes. You want to have your users use the systems that you implemented mm -hmm. in the way that you've defined it. You, you use another word for that besides you want them to do the thing you wanted to do in the way that you wanted them to do it. No, I just leave it. I just leave it like this. <laughs> no, but I, I get what you're saying. And I feel like that's a real, that's such a strategy, a great strategy for making people responsible and giving them the power to help each other. Mm -hmm. Because that's, a, that's the people who you're ending, ending up trying to serve, right? Part of it, at least. Yeah. And then, then the other thing is, is maybe a, a piece of humble pie, you know? Yeah. So if you get the feedback that you don't want to hear to, which is actually the best that you could get because people have built trust with you that they dare to tell you that, yeah. well, you should go and adapt your communications material, your change management plan, your change management strategy if you want, right? Wow. It's, it's not a failure if it doesn't work. And I think that's the biggest misconception, you know? Yeah. People are different and what works for one might not work for another, right? So what what has worked in a previous project where you did this, that doesn't mean that it works for your current project mm -hmm. because people are different. So just take a step back and don't be upset if somebody tells you that this, that you are the stupidest person they ever seen <laughs> and that this is the worst <laughs> stuff that they ever have seen in systems and why is it just half-baked and, and all those wonderful things that you get. But reflect and think about what do you have to change. Yeah, and one of the other things is remember that that communication is really the long tail of transformation. Mm -hmm. It's the one that that goes for for far longer than a lot of the other parts of a project. After go live, you need to try and reach a steady state, and you're going to know that you get there from a couple of different things. You know, you you want your target group to be self-sufficient. You talked about that change that is self-sufficient is sustainable. You want your target group and your organization to have reached your business objectives. And you want to, for the most part, have overcome resistances that are being experienced along the way. You want to make it easy to get started, easy to love the change, and easy to live in that new space that has changed too. And just to make it clear and repeat what you just said, don't stop communicating after go live. Yes. I've seen so many projects where you had your go live and you maybe have enabled the first user group, which is like maybe 5% of all your end users, and then the project team gets disbanded 
<laughs> and people just go yep. elsewhere, you know, leave completely or be assigned to different teams in the next release or whatever, right? What you might see is that resistance might come up after the go live. Yeah. You know, when you open the floodgates to the other 95% of your users, because like I said before, people are different. And I think it's very, very crucial to communicate through the whole life cycle of your project or your program and not stop after go live. But JM, what do you do when you're done with your project? You know, you're, the, 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 the big tube of pebbles is filled and, and there's actually not more to do than to uh, remove the cobwebs and uh, put your computer back into a box. Ah, you put your head down and you trudge back. No, I'm just kidding. You celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something we should do together. I mean, remember, people are involved in your project in very different ways. And not all of them have visibility to the great achievements that the project has been able to get to. Some of them were seconded for part of the project. And some of them were in one very small business area. So... Bring them together in the same way you do a kickoff where it's so important that you get all the people in the room. You have to do a celebration, a closeout, and a, and a recognition of the amazing work that's been done. It is our, you know, the privilege of human nature to want to enjoy success. Give them that catharsis. Yeah, and, and it also might lead to very interesting situations. To, to stick with that example that I mentioned earlier, the telecommunications company, we did a big party afterwards. Yeah. You know, everybody was invited and whatnot, up to a point where uh, we put a smart car uh, in the room and you had the C-level guys filling the smart car. And the exercise was how many people could fit into a smart car? You know? <laughs> and then think about the CEO hops in, the CFO hops in, and all those guys. And then they tried to fill it. And I forgot how many people they fit in. But it was definitely more than the two that were allowed. <laughs> <laughs> they fit in four HR violations. Oh, Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but that, so summarize this for me, though, Roland, because we, we've been talking a lot what is communication why is it important and how are we seeing people do it so it's successful so one thing you should not do is you should not see communication as a, an afterthought or a second thought you know oh that's something that i have to do i think this is the critical successful factor on any project yes right and, and just remember changing people and changing people uh, people's behavior is the most difficult thing to do hmm. Right. Yes, it is. So, dear audience, let me bring you now into our second pause into our show and have I have a couple of questions for you. Don't pretend that it's just one. <laughs> so within the next couple of seconds, think about the time you had to socialize a change. Which of those things that we mentioned did you do? Which of them didn't you do? What worked and where did you struggle? And what could you have done better now that some time has passed? Uh, we leave you alone for a couple of seconds. Listen to the wonderful music of Jeremy Volz. And when the music is over, we come back and go into our third segment. Thank you. 
All right, folks, thank you so much for taking a couple of seconds to think about how this might uh, work for you and where it hasn't in the past to really communicate well with folks during a change. But there's another part of this puzzle and Roland and I would love to dig into that. And it's beyond just communication. It's beyond just developing a plan for talking to each stakeholder and getting that right message. It's also about the content. And Roland, I know you've had to do this a million times. Talk to me about enablement as part of org change management for programs. Yeah, and we briefly touched it already. So enablement is the third large change management topic in programs, you know, after org design, communication, and now enablement is the third one. And we mentioned it before, you should use your business architecture design for your training designs. You know, mm -hmm. you have your processes mapped out, you know, the roles that do stuff in there, you know, the systems, you know, the transactions and all that stuff. And if you have a tool that does connect with things like training material development tools and learning and development systems, oftentimes there'll be an interface, just saying, kind of useful. <laughs> <laughs> this is not for all the SAP users here. They all know that already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, but uh, JM, talk to me a little bit. What are those phases that you go when you develop your enablement program? Well, that's a great question, Roland. And we're going to obviously put all this as a part of a transcript on whatsyourbaseline.com, so you don't have to take notes as you drive. But let me go through them one at a time. So the first one we're going to talk about is curriculum. So you're going to figure out what curriculum you're going to need to teach. Um, and as a note, you would probably want to have different sets of curriculum as well as different uh, training methodologies depending on your stakeholder groups and their particular needs once you've done that work you've identified them at the beginning so you're developing sets of curriculum what do you think about that Roland? Agreed and when you do a training um, don't make the mistake that I see way too often when people do this in the fact that they just show how a tool works. Yeah, of course. In my opinion, a good training has three components. The first one is, and I say that in a light way, would be uh, governance slash rules of engagement. You know, how do we run the show here? What is expected of you, dear training participant, to do? Yeah. The second part of your training might include concepts. You know, when you think about implementation of an architecture tool, you might want to talk about what is BPMN as a notation? What does that actually mean? You know, mm -hmm. um, or how does accounting work in SAP? Right. Right. And then the third part of it is actually then the tool enablement. You know, which buttons do I have to press to do this or that? And I feel like a lot of people developing curriculum only ever focus on the third. Mm -hmm. They're thinking, okay, how do I get someone the shortest path to being functional in the tool? But being functional in a tool doesn't mean being functional in the business. It means being able to click buttons, but you never know why. Or in the case of any sort of variation, as it comes up every single day, how to handle daily life as someone working in this new org and, and infrastructure change. Agreed. Agreed. So that, that goes hand in hand with enablement strategy, 
right? Yeah, that's the second part of it, you know. So we, we spoke at nauseum about a strategy and a plan as separate documents in the communication part. But that's also true here, right? Do the very same thing. Identify your stakeholders or your your target groups that you have to train. Mm -hmm. And then think about how do I train them? What's the content that I'm going to train them in? You know, what is the sequence, the frequency that I uh, will uh, act with them, interact with them? Mm -hmm. And then obviously that goes hand in hand with your communication folks, which sometimes is a different group, right? Where you bring your input into their communication material. So even within the org change management team, don't have separate work streams. They're all tied together. Absolutely. And one of those work streams is going to be the people actually developing material. So that, that's the third piece besides curriculum and, and enablement strategy and plan is actually making the material. So going and writing the documents, so the various different flavors of documents and setting up infrastructure. So remember that as part of enablement, you're going to want to give people access to sandboxes and test environments and places that they can get their hands dirty at no or low risk. But it's also the basic things when I think about infrastructure. You need somebody who sends out invites. You need to make sure that somebody's there with the key to open the door to the training room. Yeah. You need to make sure that somebody brings refreshments for breaks and all those type of things. Yeah, that's where your you know, uh, executive assistants and office managers and training coordinators work hand in hand to build an inviting environment for people to be involved in. Otherwise, it's the, the, every sort of barrier to entry you place makes it harder and harder to execute on the strategy. Yeah, but be honest with them. You know, yeah. don't do cheesy things. You know, <laughs> I've seen that where uh, people set it up as if a, say, 35 or 40 year old participant goes into the training room and it looks like kindergarten. Yeah. You know, that, that instantly uh, removes credibility from what's to come over the next six to eight hours. Yeah, and that, that's that's going to tie into the, the fourth piece of the puzzle is conducting those actual training sessions. So, Roland, I know both of us have done mm -hmm. so many training sessions. And to, to me, what makes a training session really successful um, is, first and foremost, a clear organization that's laid out and, and told to the participants um, so they understand what they're going to learn, what the expectations are of that session, and then having those pieces in place beforehand, good curriculum, a good plan and strategy that fits into, but an infrastructure that supports the execution of the training plan and uh, the sessions themselves, as well as a you know, technical infrastructure that that is something that people can work on. Um, and so what you're gonna do is you're going to run these training sessions with, with both experienced trainers, so people who are good at speaking, and also you wanna make sure those people have a good knowledge of the business and the systems. So it's a, it's a kind of this Goldilocks zone of someone who has all three contexts. And peop, there are people who are experienced specifically at this. There are people who are really good. I would say that, and Roland, correct me if I'm wrong here, I would say that it's probably easier to be able to train somebody on the business context than it is to train them on the, the very difficult skills of corporate training in an organizational change context. So I'd rather get a very good trainer and teach them how this particular organization runs mm -hmm. than to get a really good organization member and try and teach them how to train people. 
And that also might be a thought when you think about how to set up your change management group. You know, we've seen the uh, client personnel being as super users and doing first level support and all these type of things. You might want to think about a train the trainer program so that you as the external person stand back and don't do the training, mm. but, but have somebody who's part of the organization and who comes with the organizational cloud uh, to give the trainings because they have, by definition, the higher credibility. That's a good point. So, so let's say I've, I've done that that four thing. I've conducted a training session. Now, about what do I do, Roland? What, what, what are the after effects of training? So what you should not do is what every training does that I attended, is having a questionnaire after the training how the training was. <laughs> right? Did you like it? Did you like the material? Did you, you like the trainer? Stars. Was it competent? <laughs> yeah, exactly that thing. Because... At the end of the day, you will see social um, expectations. Yes. You know, oh, you just got a three there, JM. That wasn't a good training, was it? You know, so don't do this. And I'm saying that with a with a half um, half open mind in that, if you will. You know, because obviously it's nice to get the feedback. If somebody really screws up, you might want to replace the trainer. Sure. You know, if the feedback is, I haven't learned anything in the last eight hours, you might want to have a, a harsh conversation with, with the persons. But I think the more interesting thing is not to see what people feel about the training eight hours after the training, but it would be interesting to see, well, have they learned something six months after the training mm. right so did productivity go up do we still see people struggling with using the system or uh, did we train them well enough and provided enough support um, things like whatever wikis and all that other stuff um, with them that they actually succeed in using a new system yeah, I've I've actually had this conversation with with numerous clients back when I used to do a ton of training. Um, they would buy a training package, mm -hmm. and that training package would be a five day training. Mm -hmm. So there's me coming in for five days, and I do two basic days, two advanced days, and two one specialist day, right? And so after those five days, there are a few a bunch of folks who would leave the class and be like, "Okay, I, I know how to click the buttons. Cool, thanks, goodbye." But the really, really invested people in the organization would say, well, aren't you coming back next week? Mm -hmm. I said, well, New York, you already did the training. He said, well, no, no, no. We want to practice. We want to get into using the tool. And so I often find myself recommending for clients to go through the training time required to know the clicks and then having a coaching period of decreasing support from that enablement team to help sustain that training into long-term memory I agree. because otherwise it's just going to go away it's like you know carbohydrates you eat them and then you're hungry again in a couple of hours yeah and it's it's also critical that you find the right point in time you know it doesn't make sense to train somebody today when you know that they're going to use the new system three months down the road you know they have forgotten everything <laughs> oh that's the, the worst yep. I, i'm like when are you going live oh i don't know like april it's january don't train your users yeah <laughs> oh boy that brings us to the next point because getting the feedback is obviously one thing that helps you measure uh, the change. The other one is literally measuring the behavior. Yeah. Right? So six months after the training, go into the organization, look over their shoulder, look at your 
process mining, your task mining analysis. See if something really has happened. See where people still struggle, right? And then drill down and see where they struggle. Is it a matter of the process that's not right designed or is it a matter of the person who still doesn't know what to do yeah. in the right way? You want to figure that out. So again, it's change management and you're looking for behavior change. That's crucial. Mm -hmm. And then the last point is, as I said a couple of times uh, before, is adapt your strategy, adapt your plan, adapt your material as needed. The fact that you spend so and so many hours to create this doesn't matter if it doesn't work for the people. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm, I'm hearing, to summarize all these things, curriculum, enablement strategy, developing material and infrastructure, conducting training and coaching, capturing feedback, measuring behavior change, and adapting, planning, and uh, and creating sort of the iterative cycle as our seventh piece of the puzzle. That's, uh, that's a pretty good uh, piece of information for folks who are looking to do enablement. And this can look a bunch of different ways, right? This can look not just the same for everyone. You wanna be adaptive with this, right, Roland? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because at, at the end of the day, um, people learn differently. And you should accommodate those different or multiple learning styles. Mm -hmm. That obviously has some um, follow-up activities that you might not like. You know, if you're an external organization and you have to write a statement of work for your training, you assume there's a certain effort, right? Yeah. And mostly you have a one-size-fits-all approach because you don't want to put so much effort in there that you price yourself out of uh, the competition. But at the end of the day, to be really, really effective and to accommodate the fact that people learn differently, well, you will have to produce different sets of material. Mm -hmm. And that could be um, obviously maybe a book that you write or you assemble it in an, in an ebook, you know, that you give your users a reference guide. And I don't know how many people in the past have seen manuals that come with their software. I think that <laughs> went out of style like 20 years ago. Um, that might be one thing. Or uh, you might have um, the actual training material and you make that available on this. Or you have uh, articles on your wiki that explain those things, you know, where people can interact with you and ask questions and all those stuff. Yeah, actually, I saw one of my clients something really clever. Um, they had a specific style of monitor in their back when we also worked in the offices <laughs> in the before times. Um, and, and they had a specific style of monitor um, and they had a clip on the monitor and they printed out and laminated a bunch of quick reference guides on how to use the architecture tool that I was mm -hmm. consulting on. And they just left them out for people and they would just take them and they would go clunk and they would slot them into their monitor like side by side with it like another screen and so they would just be working and looking working and looking working and looking and it was just it was just a sort of an organic like oh this was meant for me this this is perfect and it makes my job easier mm -hmm. and that's an ongoing support that i have that was just made it was like it didn't take very long to make this but it made a huge difference in their lives and that's perfect to make that training stick Oh, absolutely. And and the worst thing is obviously when your laminated cards cover over the post-it where you have your password, <laughs> password one, two, three. But in all seriousness, I think what you have to produce is not only just your training material. You also think about the support for your learners, the support for your end users. You know, it's make material available to yeah. them. 
or have activities that you do. Think about uh, things like online forums, you know, where you have the big meet and greet on your forum or think about uh, in-person events if we're allowed to do that at some point in Someday. time, you know, things like uh, office hours, you know, or fireside chats, all, all those things that we all desperately are missing these days. Um, you should bring them back into your training program. Mm -hmm. And you also want to make that training program continue to be relevant, right? And the only way to do that is to establish and maintain a knowledge management principle, principle in your organization. Um, the idea is you want to keep content relevant. You want to know what's there and you want to groom that content as you continue to evolve so that your material remains relevant. Because remember that the change you're making now, like think about it as an ERP change, mm -hmm. that, that may that may reverberate through the organization for the next five to 10 years. But this is a topic, knowledge management, that we can talk a whole <laughs> episode about. And I do have some, And I think we will. <laughs> I do have an idea who we invite for this. Excellent, excellent. So Roland, I'm gonna call it for this, this episode. It's been unbelievable so far. I have one last question for all of our folks at home. Think about what you are doing to help the changes stick in your organization? How have you been involved in the enablement? How have you been involved in the promotion of change? And when the next change comes to you, how are you best gonna to adapt to both support the change, help it grow, and also help yourself make that change really stick? We'll see you in a moment. Be loved in Welcome back. Uh, I hope you had the time to think about the question that JM asked you, you know, how to make change stick and how do you adapt uh, to the change as it comes. What we spoke about in this episode was basically, if I do a little summary here, was talking about why change, why is change crucial, you know, and what are the three areas of successful implementations when you think about standing up your architecture practice, think about content, governance, and adoption, and how critical adoption is. Yeah. And then we dove into the three main areas of org change management in this content, which is org design, right? Remember, don't have a separate group, make your org design people, little mini business architects so that you work on the same thing. Uh, we spoke about communications uh -huh. and uh, how you get consensus with a strategy document and that uh, org change management is management after all, right? If you think uh, that way, you want to see behavioral change. And then we spoke about enablement and that people are different and people learn different. And the seven steps that you hopefully did not note down while driving, public service <laughs> announcement, the seven steps that you might want to go through to plan and stood up your enablement program. And speaking of all of you, thank you all for listening. Uh, and Roland, this was incredible. I, I really enjoyed chatting back and forth with you about this topic, particularly since we live in a time of, of great change. Um, and organizations are struggling to adapt and change to meet those needs. And so everyone on this line, 
you're going to go through this. If you're not going through it right now, you're going to go through it soon. And we're hopefully here to help you understand how to make it a little easier, a little better, and to make it really stick and count. So you can give us some feedback. <laughs> help us change how we do things. Um, we talked about feedback as a really important mechanism. You can hit us up at uh, hello at whatsyourbaseline.com um, or leave us a, uh, a voice message on Anchor. Uh, if you happen to like that using that platform, we'd love to hear your wonderful voices telling us all about your stories, just like ours. Now, of course, we'd love to get a review from you and, of course, a rating in your podcatcher of choice. Um, so please go and do that. It really helps us uh, as we as we try and grow this podcast to meet everyone else in the organization uh, and, and in the world who's doing what we're doing. Um, and, of course, all of the things you've heard today are going to be available on our website at whatsyourbaseline.com um, as a full show notes at whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 17. Well, once again, I've been J.M. Erlinson. And I'm Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>